0: Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Last week I shared with you a quote from the late Robert Mounts. He was a theologian and contributor to the New American Commentary, which is a commentary that I I appreciate. Uh, I have about Uh, I have about 70 commentaries, so it's just one of many, but um, he's a very brilliant man. And in that commentary, he said these words. He said, Paul's letters were not intended as abstract treaties on matters ethical and theological, but pastoral notes addressed to real life situations in first century churches. Let me say that to you again. Paul's letters were not intended as abstract treaties on matters ethical and theological. They are ethical and they are theological, as I shared with you last week. However, they are not to be applied anywhere we choose, any way we choose. Everything in the scripture has to be applied um, uh, in context and uh, with, with like applications. So as I shared a little bit last week, Uh, We need to put round pegs in round holes and not try to force square pegs into round holes. So Paul's letters were not intended to be abstract treaties on matters ethical and theological. Though they're ethical and theological, they are pastoral notes addressed to real-life situations in the first century. This morning, my goal is to carry over what we learned last week about faith and couple that with the particular real-life situation that was going on in 1st century Rome. And then, out of that, what we'll do is we we will draw application. I've said it many times in the past that even though the Scriptures weren't written to us, they were most assuredly written for us. Uh, They were not written to us. There's not a passage in scripture that says hey to you in 21st century uh, America Pierce Point Community Church, but there's not one word that's written in scripture that is not for us in some particular way. Uh, So that being said, we have much to gain from Paul's Writings, uh, even though they're 2,000 years old, much to gain from Jesus' words from the Apostle Peter and James and so on and so forth. So there's no better place than to start, uh, to start than at the beginning. So Romans chapter 14, uh, starting at verse 1. I'm going to read you four verses and then we're going to walk through each one of them. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, verse 1, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand." Now, verse 1 is really important, and we're going we're gonna to unpack it a little bit. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. As we discussed last week. The definition of faith is trust, and so we remember our motto. And I want you to say it with me: Faith is trust, and that is all. Say it with me: Faith is trust, and that is all. So this is really important for us to understand when it comes to the idea of faith. It is not to be viewed in some sort of uh, in some sort of fashion that it that it becomes a measurement in our lives. Uh, when the scripture talks about weak faith versus strong faith, uh, we explained very thoroughly last. Last week that this is not a meter on a scale your your faith ometer meter doesn 't ever hit the point where uh, the, the the fuel light comes on because it 's too low you either have faith you either trust God or not and in that Uh, respect faith is in fact binary it is one or a zero it is on or off the contrast of weak faith in Romans 14 1 is found in Romans 15 1 which says this Romans 15 1 says now we who are strong in faith is implied ought to bear with the weaknesses of those and here's the magic line for us without strength it does not say with little strength. It says without strength. So the ones who are strong are to uh, bear the weaknesses of those without strength. So we need to keep our minds focused on how we're supposed to render uh, weak and strong faith or little faith and much faith. So the one who lacks strength is actually, according to Romans 14.1, the responsibility of the one who has strong faith. And, and I would... I would say that the opposite is true in this way, that the one who has strong faith is the concern of the one who has weak faith. That is that they should look to them. They should listen to them. They should understand what it is that they have to say. Paul confirms this idea that we need to be for the weak or that we need to care for the weak. He writes to the Galatians that fulfilling the law of Christ that fulfilling the law of Christ is actually manifest when we, quote, bear one another's burdens. So uh, we, we're to be obedient, amen, church? We're to be obedient. What does it mean uh, to fulfill the law of Christ? What does it mean to be fully obedient uh, to him? Well, one of the areas is that we bear the burdens of the weak. That's Galatians 6, 2. Again, a most familiar passage among Christians is Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, which communicates the exact same principle to care for the weak. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the other. Scripture is replete with this idea, church. Over and over we're told that we need to provide for those who are weak, that we actually need each other. Can I get an amen on that one? We need each other. This, uh, this idea does, the, the idea of keeping or caring for the weak and, and uh, being concerned with the strong and listening to them actually uh, provides the death knell, as I see it, for the idea of Lone Ranger Christianity. Um, we talked this morning in, in Barney's time, uh, Barney's teaching this morning, that you can worship God anywhere. How many of you know that? You can worship God anywhere. Um, This, uh, in in the New Testament, we didn't didn't transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament uh, by way of building or structure as the temple of God. We went from a temple made by human hands to a temple made by God's hands, which is actually you and I. But here's what's really important for us to also remember in this, that the scripture doesn't ever fully communicate that you alone are a temple of God. It says you are a brick in the temple of God, which means you are a part of a majestic whole, and that when we come together, we are, uh, we are the place where God dwells. That's such a powerful idea. So here's what's really important about that. You can worship God anywhere. You can worship him in your your bedroom. You can worship him anywhere you want. You can be alone. How many of you remember the passage of scripture that says, where two or more are gathered, there I am in their midst? Please do not read that out of context. The scripture does not communicate the idea that God only shows up when two or more are present. The Spirit of God dwells in you. He is with you. The, the Scripture communicates in context that the uh, judgment of God's people, the established principles and judgment of God's people are uh, made True or sure in the company of two or more. Which means that God, when we make a decision, especially with regard to church discipline, that's the context of where two or more are gathered. When we understand that rightly, what scripture is saying is in the presence of two or more, God is there to establish a thing with us. That's powerful. But you can worship anywhere by yourself. But here is the real issue. The real issue is that the church has taken that to an extreme and said, I don't need you. I don't need you. The same scripture that teaches us that we can worship God on our own is the same scripture that says, forsake not the assembling of one another. Church, we cannot do this on our own. It does not matter what you think. You cannot do this on your own. And there is a significant difference between a a church structure. I'm not trying to defend a position here. I just want you to understand something. There is a significant difference between a church structure that has governance and has leadership and has headship and your small group. Did you know that? There is a difference in those things. The Scripture communicates very clearly what a church consists of. And so it's really important to understand that there are things that we short-circuit, if you will, in our Christian experience because we've believed the world's view of what the church looks like. I can do it all by myself. You can't. You can't. When you fall into a pit and you need somebody to lift you out, please tell me again that you can do it on your own this idea of looking out for the weak, it, it really does uh, shut down the idea of Lone Ranger Christianity. Paul's specific point, though, in Romans 14:1 is rooted in the greater context of the book of Romans. Remember that Paul said to those who are strong, verse 1, accept those who are weak. But back in Romans eleven fifteen, Paul is talking about unbelieving and therefore hardened Israel, and he is talking to Gentiles, okay? It's really important to connect who he's talking about versus who he's talking to. So he talks about uh, unbelieving, hardened Israel, and he's talking to the Gentiles. And he says to the Gentiles, for if their rejection, that is the Jewish people, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, that is the Gentiles, that is the people he is is wanting to pay attention at that time, what will their acceptance be, acceptance, the bringing back, uh, but life from the dead, Paul goes on to say that the Gentiles, uh, to the Gentiles, that although they've been grafted in and now possess immense freedom, and what I'm gonna show you in a second is now that they possess strength in their faith, they are strong in their faith, they have freedom, they are not to despise those whom God foreknew, which I'm also going to show you happen to be weak in faith in this moment. The context is actually a conflict between Gentile believers and Jewish believers and all the traditions that they've brought in to the church, right? But we'll see this in a second. So Paul goes on in verse 2. Read it with me. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. This is not a shot against vegetarians, Maybe, I don't know. So, anyway, just give me a steak. I'll be happy, right? So, but notice the weak and the strong are identified here. There's a reason why God's word identifies who we're talking about. The strong is the person who understands, as Paul goes on to say twice in this chapter, verses 14 and 20, that all things are clean. So, the strong person is the one who eats and the one who understands that all things are clean. But those who eat vegetables only are identified as the weak. Interestingly enough, what we see here is that those with pedigree, those with a past, those with traditions, those with understanding, in this context are in fact the weak ones. They are the Jewish people who are abstaining from food. Keep it in your mind as we're reading this. Sure, they have the law and the prophets. Yes, there is much advantage in being a Jew in every way, but their lack of understanding with respect to their freedom in Christ is a lack of maturity. It's a lack of faith. They don't know what it means to fully trust him. So you can see it clearly painted there. It's a matter of faith for these Jewish believers. Meanwhile, the strong, again, are those who understand and they walk in their God-given freedom. We need to understand this, that when we see somebody who who understands the scripture and is walking in complete freedom, they actually are the strong in faith. But even this freedom comes with a deep, deep responsibility. This is where I want to go with this. If you identify as one who understands your Christian liberty, understands your Christian freedom, and therefore identify as a strong faith Christian, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Here's where we start to get practical in this. Right? Here's where mutual submission comes back uh, into our heads. Verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So that we're keeping it straight again. The one who understands their freedom, that's the strong. The one who doesn't is weak. So let's deal with contempt first. The term contempt. Here's what it means. It means those who, um, who believe someone or something is uh, underneath them or beneath them, right? They're deserving of scorn. How many of you have ever experienced the feeling of contempt in your life? How many of you have ever held somebody else in contempt in your life? You've scorned them. You've looked at them in a very interesting way. Let me give you a really interesting example here. Um, when we observe a courtroom and we hear about somebody being held in contempt Do you know what happens in that situation the person has so disregarded the authority of the court that they've deemed it worthless they've so disregarded the the view of the judge the view of the jury the people around them that they've deemed it worthless and a vital truth that we need to understand in this attitude is that you cannot have order when there is contempt And for the Christian, what we need to realize is that you cannot reach unity when we view each other with contempt. Why would you have unity? You're always going to have division. You're always going to think them as less than inside of your life. So in that uh, courtroom context, we want unity, we want order. The only way that happens is if we abandon this idea of holding another in contempt. As a Christian, and in this case, the strong faith, the strong in faith, we must not treat the weakness of another. No matter how long or how brief they've walked with Jesus, we must not treat them with contempt. And just so you know, the Jewish people prove you can walk with the Lord, you can walk with God for a long time and still have weak faith and still miss it. Uh, it it's probably um, uh, not too profound to you, but it's a very profound source to me. It was a James Bond movie that said that youth is no guarantee of, of novelty or newness, and age is no guarantee of wisdom. How many of you know that? Age is no guarantee of wisdom. I've met some older people in my life that I have no idea why they keep missing it, right? And, and I'm not talking about Jerry even though I'm looking at him. Um, it, I've met some people like that, but you know what else is true? Just because you're young doesn't mean what you've come up with is new and exciting and any of those things. The truth is, nothing is new under the sun. You should probably just humble yourself just a tiny bit, right? So, uh, so we, have to, we have to really understand that we are not to hold each other in contempt, right? Holding each other in contempt is such a problematic situation. Again, breaks down unity. It's important to say, again, that the strong in faith and the weak in faith are defined very clearly for a reason. The Apostle Paul, if he doesn't define the weak, then it would be my view that the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians in this day, would have viewed themselves as strong, when they were in fact the weak ones. Think about it, you've you've heard people say this all the time. Don't you tell me that I'm weak? I've walked with Jesus for, I've done this for years, I've done that for years, I grew up in the church, how dare you tell me? That doesn't mean squat, you know that, right? it doesn't mean anything. So these Jewish people, God or Paul through, you know, through the inspiration of God, has communicated to them that they are in fact the weak ones. In our lives today, one of the many reasons we must rightly divide the word of God is so that we can adequately define weak versus strong faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment. It's not to create a division in the church. Instead, We're to do it so that we can bear the burdens of those who are weak. We are all called to care for our brothers and sisters in mutual submission. One of the big problems is that when we're weak, our pride won't let us admit it. How many of you felt that way at times? Go, I know I need help but ain't no way I'm submitting to that. Ain't no way I'm gonna confess that because then they're gonna think other things of me. Who cares what people think of you, church? What you need to do is realize that if you need help, ask for it. We can't get better if we don't ask for help. We can't get stronger if we don't ask for help. So, meanwhile, the weak in faith, they are not to judge the one who eats for God has accepted him this is a really important thing so please listen up this may come as a shock to you but judgment is often what comes from those who are weak in faith judgment is what often comes when those with from those who are weak in faith this is the opposite of what the word seems the world seems to think at least when it comes to christians this is going to this is going to hit home trust me when i say this Uh, this is what the world thinks about we're always being labeled as what church judgmental, hypocrites. We're always being labeled as something. But let's think about judgment just for a second, right? I don't see this to be the case. I don't think that this is actually the case. And here's why. Of course, we are to stand for the truth, right? We're to stand for the truth. Standing for the truth does not make you judgmental. It's construed as judgmental in our world, But standing for the truth is not a judgmental thing. Listen, if you emphatically held to the position, standing in front of me, that two plus two equals four and it can never equal anything else, the last thing I would say of you is that you're judgmental or or bigoted. I would never say that. Why? Because it's true. The world has called us judgmental because of this reason. They don't like what we're saying. But that has nothing to do with it actually being judgmental. At the same time, Christians can speak truth without love, and be harsh. Can can I get some amens? That still doesn't make you judgmental. You're you're not connecting the dots properly. If I told you you're wrong and I said it in the most aggressive and uh, and mean-spirited way, that means I'm wrong, but it doesn't change anything about the truth that I've shared with you. It doesn't make it judgmental. So what should we do in that case? Well, I think the person who speaks the truth without love should repent, right? I personally believe that Christians, uh, as Christians, we've accepted too many of the labels that the world has placed on us. We've accepted them. We, we've bought into them completely. And sadly, what happens as a result is that we actually change all of our practices, all of our methods, answering a criticism that's not valid. Listen to me, church. If I was a professional football player, if I was a professional quarterback, or maybe a professional golfer, okay? There's, there's some important things about uh, your throw. There's some important things about your swing, you know what I'm talking about? Now listen, if somebody came along and said, I think you're getting it wrong, but you, you had it perfect and you're healthy and you're throwing right and your shoulder feels good and your elbow feels good or maybe you're swinging, you know, your golf club. I know nothing about golf, so don't worry about it, right? But you're swinging your golf clubs and you're not getting hurt, right? And you're actually scoring well. That's all I can tell you about golf, right? Okay, let's say that's the case. And somebody comes to you and says, you're doing it wrong. You know what you should do? you should not take their advice immediately. You should ask someone who actually knows or you should should test everything. The world has come along and said, you Christians are judgmental. And you know what we've done? We've looked at each other and said, we're judgmental. We don't even know if we've been judgmental, but we've, we've accepted it. Hook, line, and sinker, we're judgmental. And guess what we've done? We've written our songs correcting ourselves. Oh, you horrible Christian, being judgmental. And you know what that's done with the world? It's reinforced their false accusation. I'm not saying that there aren't judgmental Christians. (laughs) Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we all too often accept the criticism, hook, line, and sinker, as though they're true, when maybe they're not. So we say things like this. We all sing songs like, you know, why aren't his hands reaching and why aren't his feet going? The fact is, God's church, his hands are reaching and his feet are going. Maybe yours aren't. Maybe you should look in the mirror. But his hands are reaching and his feet are going. God, God didn't stop working because you were stupid. This is really important, right? God's like, oh my goodness, what am I ever to do? My church won't do anything. God's church always does something. The individuals might not, but this idea that we've just blanketed the criticisms across the church, we're judgmental, we're homophobic, we're this, we're that, please don't construe those things with people who stand for truth, because standing for truth is not going to be liked in our world. Do you know that? Okay, so just, there's my, there's my piece, okay, I've said it, right? If we are judgmental, we should repent. Because what happens if we're judgmental? The truth is, we're weak in faith. We're weak in faith. Let's get back to Rome for a second. Seeing the weak in faith as judgmental is not that hard when you realize that the Pharisees were the biggest proponents of this kind of behavior, this kind of judgment. The Apostle Paul, again, in Galatians, speaks of those without strength, causing problems in the church. In Galatians 2.4, Paul writes these words. He says, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. So the goal of of judgmentalism has to do with stealing away liberty. I'm not saying that all those of weak faith are false brethren by any means, but what they're doing in their judgmentalism is from the exact same spirit. I'm not sure if it's covetousness or what have you. I don't really know why they do this. But those weak in faith are warned not to judge those who operate in true freedom. So both sides of faith can have problems. The strong in faith can belittle or count as worthless those who are coming up. And those who are coming up can look at those who are strong with envy and jealousy and say, no, I don't think so, and judge them constantly, over and over, right? Notice why, though. This is really important. Notice why Paul says that uh, they're not to judge. For God has accepted him. Although it may appear that accepted him has to do with the direct object here of the strong in faith, it does apply to both. Paul is talking about God accepting both, the strong and the weak. And how do I know this? Because he's talked about all of them as being brothers in Christ. Over and over through the epistle to the Romans, it's always about them being on the same team. They're brothers in Christ. Charles Spurgeon said something that was just very profound when it comes to our Our judgment and our actions. And this, I think, applies to both strong and weak in faith. Here were his words. He says, we accuse others to excuse ourselves. Think about this. We accuse others to excuse ourselves. We are such fools as to dream that we are better because others are worse. Like, Think about this, church, if, if, the, if there was a scale, right, and I'm not talking about faith here, but there, if there was a scale of, of reaching to the point where you were, you were most God-like, you were most Jesus-like, you being at one and the other person being at zero doesn't make you better, okay? It simply means you're at one and you need a lot of work, Amen? <laughs> So he goes on, he says, we accuse others to excuse ourselves. We are such fools as to dream that we are better because others are worse. And we talk as if we could get up by pulling each other down. You talking bad about everybody around you doesn't make you better. It doubles down on how sinful you are. It doubles down on your brokenness. Comparison is an evil trap in the church. You know this, right? Covetousness, comparison, it's an evil trap in the church. And we do it all the time. Here's one one area that I've seen it a lot. I've seen it a lot in parenting. I see parents in a kind of competition with other parents, especially on Facebook. Facebook. Trying to, trying to one-up the next or trying to, trying to state to the world that they're a valid parent, that they're a good individual, or that their kids are better, or whatever it is. You know what the truth is? Raising kids is hard. Good luck. That's, what's, that, that's the truth. This is hard. And in our weakness in that area, we need each other's help as much as we can get it. We need each other's help. Church, we, we get into these competitions, we get into these comparisons, and it becomes a problem. We do this in the church when we serve. We say, I'm here 40 hours a week. Where are you? And your response is, this is your job, idiot. Anyway, but, but the, the point, though, is that we compare ourselves in really strange ways, right? We say, I've done more than that person has done. Listen, I, I'm talking about things I'm guilty of. We love this comparison, but thinking ourselves better or thinking the other person worse doesn't change a thing for the kingdom of God. Us helping the weaker and the weaker learning from the stronger, that's what advances things inside of the kingdom. And we need to get our minds straight when it comes to these things. If you've studied Galatians or the book of Acts, uh, you'll remember that there were Judaizers that had come in and disrupted the churches, okay? Uh, They were telling the churches that, that they had to keep the laws of Moses, at least become circumcised, in order to truly be saved in Jesus, it's worth noting that the difference between the Judaizers and the person of weak faith that eats only vegetables is that the Judaizers were connecting salvation with their practice. Okay, I need you to hear something really important. We've all, we all have areas where we're weak in our faith, but it doesn't mean that we're disrupting the church or that we're becoming false teachers. okay. You have to understand this. This is why the Apostle Paul can say to a group of Judaizers uh, some very harsh, brutal things, and yet he can say to the weak in faith in Romans 14 that we should have compassion and love for them and that we should help the weak. Because they're not actually the same. Just because a person doesn't trust Jesus in an area of their life say, for example, what you can eat and what you can't eat, just because a person struggles with understanding that does not make them a false teacher. What makes them a false teacher is when their practice is required for your salvation. If you don't do this, you can't can't be right with Jesus. You need to be circumcised. You need to do this. You need to do that. And, of course, I hope you're mature enough to understand, I am not talking about uh, obeying God's commands. That is something that we're all called to do. Amen. In view of mercy, we're still called to be obedient, but our lack of understanding uh, will, uh, our understanding will grow over time. Our lack of understanding will, will diminish. Concerning teachers and those trying to cause division in uh, division, the scripture is clear. Listen to these words from Titus: "Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them." That doesn't sound very Christian. It does sound Christian because it's written there. But but with those who are merely weak in faith and those who lack understanding, I believe that 2 Timothy 2.24 and 25 should govern our practice. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. That's a powerful model to follow right there. To follow a model of kindness, to follow a model of patience with other people. At the beginning of the week, I posted something on Facebook, which turned out to be rather prophetic, actually, for this week, for the situations that we were dealing with this week. But uh, I said that although the church at large has a serious problem with avoiding conflict, another big issue that we struggle with is having the patience uh, that we need uh, to, to uh Bring about correction. We need to be patient with people who need to be corrected. The scripture is quite clear that we are to correct, fellow brothers and sisters. Can I get an amen? amen. That wasn't loud enough, but we'll get there. Uh, but a question we have to take seriously is how much time does it take for the one who is corrected to see the error of their way? Uh, what, what method is best employed in addressing specific situations? These are, how, many of you, uh, how many of you have kids in this room? How many of you treat all of your kids exactly the same? Awesome. I'm going to have to learn from you guys. I can't treat my kids the same. Say it again. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Okay, well, I stand corrected. Okay, they only have one child. But regardless, for me... What do we do around here? Just horse around. That's what we're doing around here. Anyway, so here, here's the deal. I have four girls, okay? And they could not be more different from each other. If I looked at Sam and said, Sam, I'm highly disappointed in you, she would be crushed for days. I have no idea why. So I tell her to suck it up, right? Anyway, so, so if I told her I was disappointed, with Kate, with Kate, it requires a little bit of both. It requires physical correction and this, you know, discipline in her actions. Those are both required. For Joe, nothing has worked so far. <laughs> you could beat the child. It's, it just doesn't matter. I have never gone that far. I'm just simply saying that she just doesn't listen. She just, she's an obedient child. I, I, I'm mischaracterizing Joe. She's an obedient child, but she has more energy than Sarah, me, Sam, Kate, and Becca combined, okay? So, so she's always going. I told this story to somebody the other day. I'm, I'm here, so I might as well just keep going with it. But I, I told somebody the other day, my girls all wake up from their room in the morning a different way. 7.30 hits, and there's music that's played. Now that we have a piano, I'll sit down and play, and the, and the kids will come out, okay? Music, that's their time to come out of the room. If the music ain't playing, stay put, Right? <laughs> Right? Mommy and Daddy need peace and quiet just every once in a while, right? And so 7.30 comes, the music starts playing. All of my girls exit the room different. Becca's still in her crib still. but, But Sam comes out. She opens the door real slowly like she's already a teenager. Walks up to me and gives me a big hug on the piano. And I'm like, I win. I love this. So good, right? Kate comes out of the room. Where's Mama? She doesn't care where I'm at. It's okay. She just goes to Mama, right? If if Joe is the first one out of the room, and I'm not exaggerating, 7.30 will hit, I'll hit the first note. The door goes, boom, hi! (laughs) This This is Joe. She's unbelievable. I love that girl, but she is just a lot, right? So how we discipline our girls is very different. The same thing happens with people. The same thing happens with people in the church. You can talk to somebody, just simple conversation over coffee, and they get it. There are people who take church discipline to get them to wake up. There are some people who take two or more. There are some people that that require the church saying no, 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 no before they'll get it. There's different things things for different people, right? And what I think needs to happen in the church today is we need to have a little bit more wisdom on how we handle those particular issues, right? The whole context of Romans 14 and 15 tells us to bear with one another in weakness, which means we've got to address situations based on the heart of the person that we're dealing with. Please hear me when I say this. We've already, we already live in an instant outrage culture, amen? We shouldn't look like the world, when it comes to how we respond to issues in the church. Finally, at least for today, is verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another, Paul says. To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Next week, we're going to look at the idea that even as Christians, um, even as Christians, every one of us is going to stand before our maker. Did you know that? Every one of us will stand before our maker and every one of us will give an account of the good and the bad that we have done inside of this life. And I'll show you that next week. I'll make the case very clear for you. Although this standing before God is not connected with our justification, it is not, it is not uh, connected with our salvation. Why do I know that? Because scripture says, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not going to turn around somehow. Okay? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It does have to do, though, with our reward. We are to live this way. And another thing that we're going to talk about next week is uh, what uh, Christian liberty is and what Christian liberty is not. So please, I want, you to, I want you to be here for that. But what I do want you to see today is the phrase, the Lord is able to make him stand. Can you say that with me? The Lord is able to make him stand. Please say it one more time. The Lord is able to make him stand. What a glorious truth that we see clearly in Scripture here. For I am confident of this very thing, the Apostle Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Who's doing the perfecting? God. Will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. The truth is that those who are faithfully surrendered to Jesus... We are his sheep, church. We are the flock of his pasture. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. Isn't that a powerful truth? So what we need to remember is that whether we have weak or strong faith, it doesn't matter. Whether we have weak or strong faith, it doesn't matter. Identifying it is valuable. It's needed in the church today. Identifying it is good. But when we do what we should do, if we are a weak in faith person, we need to trust those who are strong to teach us, to pick us up, and to to get us on a journey towards maturity. If we're strong in our faith, we are not to just be isolated and independent and think we got it all figured out. We're good. And they'll figure it out someday. No, you condescend. You come down. You come underneath. There is no greater model than Jesus Christ who came down to earth, humbled himself, came in the form of a man, and died for a bunch of sinners like us. That beautiful truth is our model for how we treat those who are weak in their faith. We come under them. We go to the scripture to define strength and weakness. We don't make this stuff up. And then we come under, if we are strong in faith, we come under to help people out. This is our call as Christians. This is what will change the world's criticisms of the church. Some of their criticisms, not valid. Most of their criticisms. Some of their criticisms, fine. But what we should do instead of singing songs about our weaknesses, what we should do is repent of those weaknesses and we should submit to God once again. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at PiercePoint.org for more information.